0: Hey legends, welcome to the ED Jam Podcast for another awesome episode. This week I'm chatting to Dr. John McKenzie. Um, you probably heard the saying before, that your reputation precedes you, uh, and it definitely was the case um, with my discussion with John. I'd heard about him, um, I've seen him on multiple videos relating to procedures, which you guys can all check out on, on the ECI website, um, and I was you know, a little bit nervous to be honest with you guys, um, however... Once you start talking to people like this, um, you feel like you get a bit of um, you know, brain cells just from osmosis talking to him. Um, I was super pumped. You're going to love this episode. We're talking about hyperbaric medicine um, and all patients that can go to the hyperbaric chamber. Um, let's crack into the episode. You're going to really love it. I want to say thank you to everyone who has been listening to the podcast. We're getting close to 40,000 downloads, which is epic. Um, and I'm mean, loving it, loving your feedback. So keep streaming it, keep sending it to your friends. You can follow me on Instagram, edjampodcast. Um, let's crack in and have a chat with John McKenzie. Welcome to the ED Jam. Awesome. Um, welcome to the ED Jam. Today I'm chatting um, to John McKenzie. I'm super stoked um, to be here. John, welcome to the podcast. Hi, good to be here, Ben. Um sorry about last week. Me and John had or well, I had some technical difficulties. Um, but I believe right now you're at the hyperbaric chamber, is that right? Yes, yeah, this is my uh
1: hyperbaric Wednesday. Uh and uh I
0: thoroughly enjoy it. Um so let's hot, hot go. Hi in the hyperbaric chamber, mate. <laughs> exactly. Um so John, just for everyone out there listening, who are you? Um I just yeah, what and what do you do for work? Yeah, so um, uh, I'm an emergency
1: physician. Uh, I've worked all around, but currently uh, at Prince of Wales, I've got quite a diverse background. I started as a GP and spent a couple of years in uh, Africa with medicine on frontier. I would spent some years as a professional ski patroller and uh, doing different things. And the uh, opportunity came up to do hyperbaric medicine. and one of my week breaks and trips overseas, I'd worked at Everest Base Camp for a few months at the other end of the scale, wow. and I uh, thought this was an opportunity to uh, um, get involved in a job which had some interesting physiological bits to it, and uh, as a different, diverse group of patients.
0: Awesome. Um, how was it on the base camp, mate?
1: Uh, oh, base camp was pretty good. We I, I was with a uh, a Swedish New Zealand expedition, and yeah, uh, I think we got. Um, uh, Those two Swedes and three Kiwis summited uh, that time, so that was a, yeah. a, a, a very entertaining period. I was up there for three months. We had a, we actually had one of the early Gamov bags, which is a, a sort of a portable foot pump operated um, hyperbaric unit, but it only really increases your pressure about uh, the equivalent of you know one, 1. 1.2 meters of seawater. So it's not really proper hyperbaric, but. Uh, yeah it's certainly useful at altitude
0: wow so from from the heights to the depths we're going to get to later talking about some different things um and you obviously like being outdoors i heard you're a bit of a cyclist from someone i know Tom, you like to be outdoors as well
1: yes yeah so i, I have an obsessive cycling disorder since the uh, cartilage in the knees disappeared and, and uh, i spend unfeasibly large amounts of money on carbon fiber bikes <laughs>
0: Uh, you, I, I'm, I join you on that one too, uh, John, actually. Oh, I've got a few bikes as well. Um, they keep me busy. Um, now, John, for people out there, um, what is a hyperbaric chamber? Um, yeah, what is it? Yeah,
1: so so basically the, the hyperbaric chamber uh, just allows us to uh, compress uh, gases uh, to a depth equivalent to a certain uh, number of atmospheres so what we mean by that is, is that when you go diving for example uh, and you uh, um, go to uh, deeper and deeper uh, you any any gases that are in your system and your lungs or in a, in a, say you had a, a bottle with gases in it uh, they would shrink down because of the increased pressures mm. so what happens in the hyperbaric chamber is, is that it's just the same as diving in fact we uh, it's measured in equivalence of meters of seawater so for example a normal compression uh, is equivalent to 14 meters of seawater or 1.4 atmospheres so there's different um, uh, uh, measurement uh, scales for uh, compression um, but it's uh, basically a chamber where the gases are pushed in to uh, increase pressure so when you increase the pressure of the total uh, tank when you are breathing oxygen for a mask the pressures are automatically increased uh, uh equivalent to the pressures that the uh, your atmosphere at the time uh, is so you're getting so much more oxygen than you can at sea level so for example um, when you're breathing air at sea level you're getting around 20 21 percent of 760 millimeters of mercury which is around 150. Um, if you go down to uh, just had air at um, 1.4 atmospheres or 14 meters, then you're getting 1.5 times that, uh, so it will plus 1.5 times that. So you'll be getting uh, 150 plus 150 plus 75. So you'll be getting 300, 425 millimeters of mercury. And then if you add oxygen, uh, you can get up to uh, 1600, 1800 millimeters
0: of mercury of oxygen which is a lot of oxygen wow and we're going to run through some different um scenarios where you would need to give patients this type of treatment what does the chamber look like john is it big small um if you could just yeah,
1: discuss- so, yes yes so the chamber inside our chamber is kind of like a uh, sparse um business class flight really <laughs> it's about uh well i don't want to get it wrong it's about uh 18 meters long yeah uh four meters wide and um pre-covid we would get nine patients sitting in big lazy boy chairs
0: nice um,
1: and there we with covid we restricted just for various different obviously for uh, isolation rules we, um, we have six uh, patients per trip that's in our big chamber but we we've got a, a four chamber chamber so it's um four separate uh, lockable compression units. So each chamber can be at its own pressure. So say for example, if we've got uh, a group of people that have gone down to Uh, 1.4 to 40 metres of seawater, or or 2.4 atmospheres, um, and we want to send somebody down, like a new, um, send some equipment down or send another uh, attendant down, then they will go in the chamber next door, then it goes down to depth, and then they can open the door between the two. So it's a wee bit like the you know the reverse of the um, uh, locks that you'll see on videos of um spaceflight. Yeah, and a same same same. A, an, an chamber, you go into an anti-chamber, you pressure equalizes, and then you can go in. So this is a the chamber we have is enormous. You know, so it's four. It used to be the biggest in the southern hemisphere. I think we've recently been overtaken by Adelaide, who have just got a new chamber put in. But they're but they're big machines. They require enormous amounts of uh, oxygen and, and uh and they've got a you know relatively high powered software managing all the valves um, uh, that uh that control the pressures uh, that we've got
0: well wow. and do you have a bunch of staff that work in there um john like a, a few nurses yeah,
1: so, so on any given day we have uh two technicians because we have um uh what we call the multiplace which is the big chamber and two monoplaces which are like a single sort of glass um glass uh, two big glass cylinders, and one patient at a time goes in there. So instead of wearing a mask with oxygen and pressurizing the surrounding air, uh, they just get pressurized with oxygen uh, in there. And and, I mean, the major difference between being alone in your chamber and being in a chamber with five other people is that you get to choose the movie. um, (laughs)
0: Well, it sounds like a good thing, mate. We can't fly at them, or we weren't able to fly with COVID, but they should have come to the um, hyperbaric unit, mate, and sat in first class. yeah
1: exactly it's sort of a, you know the, you don't you, you the biggest risk for most of the time is uh having to watch too many rom-coms depending on the mix of the patients and
0: <laughs> it sounds awesome um and what i was going to ask was um what types of conditions um can you use it for and then we'll get on to what types of Conditions you you know most likely use it for are the ones you sort of spend a lot of time using it for. Yeah, we well, sort of
1: um, being we're a public hospital unit, so there's a couple of things this means. Is one is that uh, we are, are driven uh, in terms of the available evidence in terms of what we treat, um, and that's been uh, driven a lot uh, um, by um, Medicare um, approved indications to treat um, and. So you, you might hear of a lot of stuff on the internet about hyperbaric being used for lots of things, including racehorses and rugby league players. Yeah. But um, <laughs> there's not a lot of clear evidence for soft tissue injury, otherwise we'd all be in there all the time. But um, the, uh, So the, the, there's a really broad spectrum. So uh, we've got uh, more chronic and uh, subacute problems are like such as diabetic non-healing ulcers, Um, where increased oxygen to the tissues causes a number of different things, including uh, neovascular development, so new vessels um, and treatment of radiation damage to bone and radiation damage to soft tissue. So that is in the form of something they call osteoradionecrosis, so bone death caused by radiation. So somebody's had cancer, they get radiation. um, A few years down the track, their jaw starts to melt or rot away or the teeth fall out. And that this is um, often something called osteoradionecrosis. Also, we treat to prevent osteoradionecrosis. So, say for example, someone's had radiation uh, on, around there for a laryngeal cancer, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, they're going to get teeth pulled or, or um, uh, some sort of restorative process in the jaw. Then we'll give them hyperbaric uh, treatment because trauma can sometimes lead to osteoradionecrosis. So we're using it for prevention. Um, other areas in that ilk, uh, a lot of patients who have had um, high dose radiation for prostate cancer uh, will get something called radiation cystitis, uh, which is um, leads to bleeding and hematuria. So patients can get quite anaemic with this, and we have quite good success treating um, hematuria from radiation cystitis. So that's at the sort of the, the chronic end of the spectrum, at the um, more dramatic end of the spectrum, particularly sick and unwell patients are uh, the necrotizing fasciitis or um, gas gangrene or flesh eating bug that you might know another term it's known by so these patients uh, come from all over the state Um, they'll often uh, the the treatment for necrotizing fasciitis is surgery uh, high dose antibiotics and hyperbaric therapy and you need to get all three so we'll often get them in at all times of the uh, the night with uh, uh, from the retrieval service they come in by helicopter they've had their surgery they've got their antibiotics they're ventilated they're often on um high dose noradrenaline they're very sick patients and then we take them into the chamber um and we always have a when they when these very sick patients go in all patients have there's an attendant in the chamber with them yeah it's um, so we have our um uh, ICU trained nurses uh go on there you have a you have to have a decision maker outside the chamber because when you're in the chamber um sometimes executive function drops off a little bit so you can get an elements of narcosis so okay. you always have somebody in the chamber doing things and somebody outside the chamber doing the thinking
0: that's well, really interesting sort of how long would you be in the chamber for in relation to sort of a neck fash patient john
1: well the neck fash is normally uh like a around a two hour um compression yeah uh, but for the longer compression so you know the obvious. Um, uh, things that we compress up for bends or um, or DCI uh, the decompression illness, uh, and the uh, they go down uh, on on a table based uh, so sort of Navy table called the RN62, which is a four hour forty minute compression. So that's our longest compression. Wow. So in fact, when they, uh, uh, the the attendants have been down with them, the attendants actually need to decompress when they're coming up. So near the end of the treatment, we'll. Uh, uh somebody will go into the um compartment next to it they'll go down to depth uh and the attendant will come out and they'll swap off and the attendant sits in there um basically doing decompression stops like you would when you go diving
0: for a long period of time when john was talking about this i couldn't stop thinking about times i've looked after really unwell patients or even times other people have even been stuck in a ct room or going for a transfer from, you know, an ED to an ICU with a really sick patient. You can't wait for that elevator to hurry up and get to that next level. However, imagine being stuck in a chamber for four hours or even two hours with a really sick patient. It also made me think about the elements. You know, we, all, we think about paramedics as well, being out in the sun or, you know, going to a retrieval job in the cool or even jumping out of a helicopter like the retrieval guys do. The elements can really affect um, our brain power, how we think, our motor function, how our hands move, but also being in the chamber, um, not getting the same gases that you normally get at atmospheric pressure, um, and those things being impaired, you know, maybe taking a little bit longer to make a decision. Uh, I love how John was talking about having a spotter, having someone outside the room who can help um, make those decisions a bit clearer. Um, I was super interested just in the complexity of looking after such an unwell patient. Um, Even when we transfer patients who are intubated and ventilated, it takes a lot of manpower um, to move those patients throughout a department. Um, So I found this really interesting, um, and I'm sure if anyone has worked in this field, I'd love to hear more about it. Wow. That's a very, you know, it's very interesting. You know, you probably I wouldn't have thought that um, I, you know nurses and doctors would be doing this sort of stuff. So it's very interesting, not only for the patients but also for the um, clinicians who are working as well. Yeah,
1: look, it's a the, the, it's a great um, uh, specialty, and that you've uh, you, you've got to think a little bit about uh, the physics of it and, and physiology and how it affects the, the body and the you know the, all of the various gas equations, which you know you learn one moment and they are gone in a few seconds, but the, the, you know, the way gases behave um, uh, tells you a lot about the development of um, decompression illness. Um, And that in itself is a very interesting uh, disorder. We don't see an awful lot of uh, decompression illness now with the, you know, everybody's diving on a um, uh, computer, Uh, but um, how the body reacts to uh, depth and diving is is a um, is very, um, you know, variable. So you can quite often get, uh, you know, we call it the computer's not beat, but the patient is. And so the computer says that it was safe, but they still come in with a, you know, clearly DCI, which is predominantly a clinical diagnosis.
0: Yep. How do you diagnose that DCI, John, um, as a clinician? So what are some, uh, or what are things that are happening as a, you know, when you talk about um, the bends or what what actually is it physiologically?
1: Well, so, so basically what happens when you die for um, uh, any period of time with a compressed gas. So if you're using compressed air, for example, mm-hmm. um, then uh, there's a whole lot of nitrogen uh, in the air it, can, it gets compressed. So the amount of oxygen's highly, uh, nitrogen is highly diffusible. Yeah. So um, when you're breathing compressed air, you're breathing uh, very large doses or large partial pressures of nitrogen. So what that does is it goes into the body um and it gradually increases in concentration in the body that's when you're at depth when you come up to surface the uh, nitrogen that's in the body starts to come out of the body because it hasn't got the pressure keeping it in the tissues so it starts to come out and it coalesces to form small bubbles and when small bubbles come together they form bigger bubbles so as you come up the gases start to express themselves as the gas rather than being compressed into tiny, tiny bubble, it's getting bigger and bigger so that it can cause a number of things. You can get the bubbles come together and they're big enough and they get into the wrong place, then they're going to cause issues. So for example, uh, joints, for example, might give you a place, uh, patients come up and they might say, oh, you know, after come up after a dive, it had been a, what we call a provocative dive. So I've been down for a long time yeah. uh, and then the, and the bubbles uh, can cause pain and discomfort. Uh, in the skin, you can get uh, uh, um, special characteristic marks in the skin or a rash. You can get sore shoulders, sore joints, sore arms. Um, but then one of the more uh, dangerous and serious uh, things that can occur when the bubbles get big enough um, on the right side of the body. So you get uh, uh, large large bubbles in the venous system, which get into the right side of the heart. Um, uh, as a number of you're probably aware, you, uh, a lot of people have uh, what's known as a patent foramen ovale. So you have a connection between the right and the left side of the heart now if you've got if you haven't got that uh, hole or any connection between the right and left side of the heart the gases are simply going to go in uh, into your lungs and get um, dissolved and and go away and you probably breathe out the nitrogen but if you've got a big uh, gas bubble and it goes through a hole in your heart which a number of people have which doesn't they might not even be aware of um, it can then get pumped uh, into the brain, and you can get what's called an arterial gas embolism, and that's probably the worst thing that can occur um, uh, as, as a result of, of the bends. And if you get this, you can have uh, you can be struck out. Um, you know, the, so for example, uh, uh, you know, a case that we had was a, um, a young fellow who he got um, he actually got his uh, arterial gas embolism by a rapid ascent. Okay. So if you um, ascend rapidly. Um, there's a uh, shearing forces in the lungs, and that can allow gases to get into the arterial system. So, there's a couple of ways of gases getting into the arterial system. But what it does is, he come to the surface and found himself swimming. He just had uh, absolute weakness of his left arm. So, he was pretty much going in circles, and actually couldn't get to shore. So, he was helped to shore. Wow. So, he had a, a, you know, that was, he went to the top and uh, felt very strange, very funny, he was fighting for a while, and then great difficulty moving his left arm. So it's, um, it's quite a, a rapid onset sort of process. If you've got a rapid ascent, that makes the diagnosis reasonably easy and clear for us. Um, yep. If you've got a um, pain frame and ovale, obviously you're making the diagnosis by the clinical symptoms, but you don't necessarily need a rapid ascent. It can just be a, a large nitrogen load, which has got from the right side of the circulation to the left side of the circulation. Wow. The other things that we can treat, which is similar to that uh, iatrogenic gas embolism. so. Uh, different uh, surgical procedures that involve um, uh, insufflation of gases under pressure, mm-hmm. so some gynecological procedures, uh, some um, uh, laparoscopic uh, gut procedures, uh, procedures to repair patent foramen ovaries can all lead to uh, gas embolism
0: wow can can you get it um moving towards the cerebral section towards the brain as well i read about a cage or is it like cerebral artery well
1: that's what yeah they're sorry they're the ones i'm sort of talking about so okay yeah there. oh wow yeah, okay your cage, your cage is the um, you know when you get some neurological uh features and findings so you get the gas embolus goes from the right side to the left side of the heart yeah from there it gets that's pumped funny. out obviously it goes up through the carotids and into your brain wow so that's why you know that sort of um one of the reasons that when we get patients with whatever, uh, you know, early after um, uh, DCI we lie them flat, you give them oxygen, blow them flat. Yep. So just in case there is, uh, if somebody's got a DCI it means they've got a nitrogen load, means they've got bubbles, means they're at risk for a cage. Okay. So if they're lying flat, then there's less chance of bubbles rising to the top. Yep. Um, if you give them oxygen, There's a uh, they off gas, so they breathe out their nitrogen quicker. So if you're just breathing, Oxygen in the lungs. Then, because of the pressure gradients, the nitrogen comes out of the system a lot quicker. So that's why we do that with patients with um, uh, DCO.
0: Wow. Um. And I mean, so I mean, in a busy emergency department, it could be so easily, uh, so easy to, you know, mistake this and then someone set them up for like a chest X-ray or something. You know what I mean? So it must be a really important to make sure they lay flat.
1: It's. It's a. It's actually. It's a really relevant question because what. Uh, um, happens is that, oh, I've been diving, I had a rapid ascent, and then all of a sudden I can't use my left arm. Yeah. and um, But, of course, a rapid ascent, and then it, it may even happen with speak to the hyperbaric consultant and we say, look, it may be uh, this is a barotrauma incident and it could be a cage. Yeah. you then got to go on to say, but when we mean barotrauma, we mean microbarotrauma. Um, you don't need to stand the patient up and send them to get the uh, chest x-ray. Yeah. Um, we, we're more concerned about the neurological uh, deficits of uh, so... When you think barotrauma you often your mind drifts to thinking oh pneumothorax yeah it's but it's actually barotrauma within the parenchyma of the lung and the in the uh, uh, micro alveoli area so you've got a micro barotrauma and then you've got a um right to left shunt of, of, of gases um, so getting people lying flat when they've uh had a case is a good idea i mean it may be by the time they get to the ED, the bubbles are gone. Yeah. Um, and quite often that's the case. It's not, a, it's not a diagnosis by, you know, let's do the CT and we're going to see a big bubble in there. Um, yeah, very rarely Is that the case? Uh, um, what you're left with is the um, uh, residual neurological deficits from the cage.
0: Mm. I liked how you raised, Um. you know, when you t- talked about getting a history, you said like dive um, depth. You talked about duration of dive um, and rapid ascent. Um, is would um, would there ever be issues if someone's dived? I don't know. Maybe they're doing a dive contest and have dived twice or a few times in a day. Does that increase the risk of getting this sort of stuff?
1: Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So you have um, uh, between multiple dives in a day, it does. So you're, yep. uh, uh, and, uh, and all of the tables, uh, the the um, uh, and, and, and and indeed computers will give you a, a amount of surface time depending on your depth and bottom okay. time. Yep. so you know we everybody knows in the real world when you're diving you know you're not staying at exactly 18 meters yeah like <laughs> whatever, your, whatever your uh high, your deepest depth is that's your that's your that's your depth so okay. you know so okay i got to 80 meters i was up and down you know for 45 minutes so basically what i tend to do is when i'm talking to somebody on the phone just for my own edification i'll draw a line down there and uh 18 um, 18 meters at 45 minutes and then they had they went to the surface 18 minutes at 45 meters probably requires two stops Um, and uh, they had their deco stops and then they had a a surface time of an hour and a. uh, you can calculate surface time which the computer does or our tables can do Um, and if you you don't have any uh, you have a certain commitment to surface time so you know it'll be say two hours or something like that then you can dive again. If you've breached those surface commitments then yes you'll have a higher nitrogen load in your body. So okay. if you're doing multiple dives, then uh, you can stack. If you don't have adequate surface time, you'll stack. And you can imagine when you're doing um uh you know you're in a beautiful Fiji offshore or yeah. around the Great Barrier Reef or something like that. There's a, a usually a great um uh you know, you want to be down there as much as possible to get the most out of your incredibly expensive dive experience. So it's it's quite important that um, you know, most operators will obviously respect uh you know the tables and, and be sensible because nobody wants to uh,
0: ruin the trip with somebody getting bent. No, nah, definitely not. Um, and I would imagine that um, for divers, I'm, I'm assuming, like, I mean, aviation people and even, like, I know, astronauts or some other people that do um, atmospheric stuff would all do training in relation to um, DCI for sure. Well, it's
1: a, obviously it's a different thing, but it's a whole new cohort of, uh, of problems when you've got yeah. uh in the chamber and down in Adelaide is actually set up to uh, do hypobaric simulation. Oh, wow. So they can, so they can decrease pressures uh, significantly. And that, that has a whole new sort of cohort of uh, of issues. And, and um, uh, you know, so you find that uh, physicians who are interested in one tend to have an interest in the other. Yeah, okay. Um, but it's, uh, in terms of the, not so much in the, the hypobaric uh, area is more in terms of researching rather than uh Sort of you know day to day treatment like the hyperbaric chambers.
0: And how just um how often would you be using the chamber if you don't mind me asking? Like um would you? Oh, be- so
1: we we have uh, um, uh, during COVID uh, we treat uh, probably between twenty and twenty five people a day. Wow. Um, okay. And yeah so and, and then now pre COVID we would run the chamber uh, our total daily tally is around sort of thirty uh, sometimes around 30, 33. Yep. Um, so. Uh you know the uh, what we've got is is that you've got your baseline chronic patients, um, you know, things that are not that exciting or not so sexy like non-healing ulcers and, and diabetic yeah. patients, but they they really do um improve people's life. So I just uh, get that just for no, a get second. it, get it, get it, it's all good, get it. Yeah, uh hi, John's been- that's oh, a cold 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 call. Cold,
0: cold, cold. cold call. Cold call. I thought they were calling up for the chamber. I was like, this is perfect for the podcast, mate. We'll cut it there. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Put something
0: in. <laughs> Would have been gold. Yeah, so, <laughs> you,
1: know, you uh, uh, just uh, getting back to the um yeah uh, um you know to the non-healing wounds and they significantly affect people's lives in much the same way as radiation cystitis or radiation proctitis and and uh you know soft tissue ones so the you know, there's, there's, although, you know, there's obviously a lot of very sick and emergency patients that you can manage. Um, mm. There's also a lot of sort of uh, chronic type patients with, who can have uh, significant uh, benefits to their lifestyle and lives uh, with the treatment. So um, mm. it's, it's, it's very good, that respect.
0: Interesting. Um, I was reading a little bit um, on carbon monoxide poisoning um, and I wanted to know, have you guys used it, the hyperbaric chamber before that? Um, could you talk to me a bit about yeah carbon yeah, so so it's one yeah. of been one of the
1: uh i suppose not not one of the great debates it's all about when you've got something which uh is a little bit hard to quantify yeah um so uh, you know um, carbon monoxide poisoning has the uh immediate effects but like anything that's related to a gas the gases go quite quickly so yeah. you know your carboxyhemoglobin hemoglobin and someone that's you know, had decreased level of consciousness being pulled out of the car with a hose in it really sick and or pulled yeah. out of the boat with a gas cooker in it, you know, all pink and red. Often by the time they get to the emergency department, their carboxy hemoglobins are normalizing. Yeah. Um, but uh, and there's been a number of um so the the hyperbaric uh tri- trials that have been done um and there's you know lots of um uh, sort of trials some better than others uh that indicated that longer-term effects so you know like executive uh, um, function years down the track might be improved by the use of hyperbaric oxygen but then you've got the um you know schools of thought that are thinking pretty much in the immediate rather than the longer-term effects and and there are you know um, well-documented psychodynamic effects of carbon monoxide poisoning down the track the the general sense now from uh recent current research is that in, uh, you know, uh, previously uh, uncomplicated uh, individuals, and I'll say individuals uh, comparing to pregnant patients, uh, that um, it's not indicated to use. And and we don't regularly compress patients um, with um, carbon monoxide poisoning. We still have a... I I think that um, there's, there's a... Significant amount of noise or signals when the evidence suggests that we probably should, but it's a, I suppose it's a relatively limited resource, and we don't often see patients because we get referrals for patients through our toxicological partners. Yeah. And there's a general sense that it doesn't work in non-pregnant patients. Um, the in pregnant patients is actually a whole different ball game altogether because the fetal haemoglobin has a much higher affinity for carbon monoxide. Okay. And um, I can just think of the last case where uh, there was a f- uh, family uh, that were um, recently arrived in the country, were in the habit of burning charcoal uh, and and had an a open fire and uh, heavy production of carbon monoxide. Fortunately, somebody was conscious enough to wake up and find three other family members unconscious, including wow. pregnant wife of a, um, a seven months gestation and. The three individuals, by the time they got to the um, emergency department, carboxyhemoglobin was sort of five, six, seven or something like that. But the pregnant woman's carboxyhemoglobin was still very high. I can't remember the exact number, but it was like 15 to 20. So you've got basically the, the fetus was the um, it was a reservoir of uh, carbon monoxide and off-gassing into the month. Um, but so the effects, so we obviously, we got her as quickly as we could and we put her in the chamber. Um, uh, so the, again, uh, high dose uh, oxygen environment. So uh, allowing to uh, extract the, um, the the speed at which you can get the carbon monoxide out of the system um, and to less effect on um, mother and baby. Uh, it's quite important. Yeah. Um, so we're still, um, so in terms of indicated yes, in pregnant patients, we are still compressing. Uh, a lot of places in the world, they're still compressing um, uh, carbon monoxide poisoning patients. Uh, our particular unit, um, you know, has got a sense that if that we would probably compress if we saw them. Yeah. Um, and uh, but I I've, I believe that other units don't. Other units compress all of them. So it's a lot. Of, it's a um, it, you know, there's a it's like all research. Um, you can interpret it how you want it I think sometimes to a certain extent Um, but uh, the current state of play is not clear so you will see we'll often get requests to treat uh, things like stroke um, strange uh, neurological disorders uh, MS different things like this where you know a lot of areas there's clear evidence that doesn't work so we we won't won't, uh, treat outside um, uh, evidence-based indications
0: okay yeah, I was just interested in it because I, I don't know if this is true. I read like 40 to 80 minutes of 100% oxygen can really help um, patients that have had you know carbon monoxide poisoning just in trying to get it back to normal. But that case you just raised then was very interesting. Um, thank you, don't yeah. you think? Yeah,
1: exactly. And, and the, the key thing, I mean, any of us, whether they're divers or um, you know, carbon monoxide—is to get the oxygen on quickly.
0: Yeah. yeah. Um, if some, I guess... Um, can you you described a case then, which is really awesome. Can you describe any other cases that you've had that have been really interesting, um, that you've sort of seen really good benefits from using the chamber? Oh
1: well, look, we it, it's uh, in case of um, uh, cage or um, cerebral artery gas embolism. Yeah, uh, they they virtually wake up on the end of the needle, so to speak. So mm. somebody might come in and they've got. Uh, um, well, you can, get, you can also get something called spinal DCI, which is um, uh, basically where you, where you get uh, neurological dysfunction, which is characterized by girdle sort of pain, so pain around sort of the waist and hips, and then um, um, uh, hemiplegia. And um, you know, often these cases, well, well, uh, you know, can you move your leg? Can you move your legs? And, and they'll, no, no, no. And then I, mean, I start to work. I start to feel more normal. And, and by the time they come out, they're better. Um, so yeah. you're often um, you ex- we expect that uh, patients with DCI uh, will get better in the chamber. And so they go and crook and they come out better. Um, probably uh, and uh, and with particularly um, any uh, cage we'll treat um, always up to 24 hours and with DCI, maybe even later, and with even with cages, but um, there's still evidence that you can get quite a good benefit. But often one of the concerns or problems that we have is getting referrals um, uh, that people think, well, unless you can throw them straight in the chamber and shrink the bubble, then you can't do benefit. But, uh, you know, we had a, a case where there was a. Um, sometimes you get a sort of mild logistic delays and you don't get them in the chamber for six or eight hours. So the gases are gone. Yeah. Um, um, but you'll get somebody who, uh, you know, has got significant neurological deficit. And, um, you know, they uh, they wake up and, and uh, all of a sudden everything's better. So you, and, um, so you you do get significant benefit from it. And that's something that, you know, obviously we see anecdotally. It's very hard to get um, for something like, uh, it's very hard to have a randomised controlled trial and say, well, you've had an arterial gas embolism. We're not going to treat you. And we are going to treat you because um, empirically um, we know that you uh, um, get improvement. And so working from just the, practical nature of okay we're shrinking the bubble Um, but uh, also the um, anti-inflammatory process of of hyperbaric oxygen uh, which which seems to be a component of it um, particularly when the the process is going on the brain
0: yeah that's interesting um what I was going to say there too um how do people refer to you like if you're in an emergency department and you feel that someone um, meets those, um, you know, sort of key factors for maybe consulting hyperbaric, how do they contact you or how yeah, so, they... so
1: basically, um, our, our, services are known throughout all of the, uh, diving networks. Yep. Um, so the, and often we'll speak directly with, uh, divers or, um, you know, dive leaders or, uh, often usually it's, um, Medico. So we, get, we basically, there's always a hyperbaric consultant on call. Um, and, uh, you know, you'll get a, a few calls a week from uh, people all over the place um, and then we have a discussion, we'll talk to the doctor, sometimes you even talk directly to the patient to get a clear sense uh, of the details of the dive mm. um, and um, work out whether we need to uh, transfer them sort of bells and muscles, you know, we'll, uh, um, so for example, uh, you know, mild DCI after 24 hours so a little bit of arm pain after 24 hours then um, it's not necessarily urgent don't need to compress straight away but can do for example the next day if you caused at night mm. but if it's within 24 hours even mild DCI can can progress so anything that's um, uh, any DCI in the first 24 hours uh, we'll probably try and get them from wherever they are at sea level to us okay. so if they're a long way away then that'll be uh, a compressed, uh, air, airplane compressed to sea level flight to us. Um, if they're within helicopter distance, then, uh, that'll be a retrieval, uh, coastline flight uh, well, down the coast and then to us, um, or if they're a little bit closer by ambulance, but you know, uh, one of the interesting things, getting into Sydney, uh, from South, of course, you've got to go up, um, over the, uh, range, 250 meter high range to get to us if you are travelling along the motorway. So, I mean, along the, um, uh, you know, going through along up that by the, so you, you've gone, if you're going, if you uh, get elevation and there's bubbles, then they'll often expand and they can cause further um, uh, symptoms, whether it's neurological or uh, pain or whatever.
0: Wow. For pain relief, is it just normal, like opioid analgesia? Um, for pain.
1: Relief? Uh, yeah, but pains, it's not a major component, it's of a major what component. We do. Uh, as part of uh, therapy for um, dci we yep. always recommend uh, good intravenous uh, hydration and anti-inflammatories but that's more of the because um, part of the ongoing uh, um, pathophysiology of uh, dci is uh, inflammatory process okay so the anti-inflammatories uh, to affect that not not necessarily pain but mm. if there's pain you're just using analgesia as you normally would um, but uh hopefully the rest of the world but myself some try to move away from opioids as much as possible
0: yeah interesting um what are the risks and complications of um you know of actually using the hyperbaric chamber yeah q1s
1: yeah, are um you got a lot a lot of oxygen so if you have yeah. a fire in there it's a big explosion yeah so anything that's uh patients and staff that go on there just wear uh, light blue scrubs and nothing nothing else yeah All the equipment <laughs> like uh, screens and everything is surrounded by inert gases so there's nothing that can uh, produce a spark nothing that can yeah. produce um so, fire, you can have immediate pressure related injuries. So, tympanic membrane brain injury, much the same way as you can do when you dive or you fly and you've got a blocked eustachian tube. Yep. Uh, you can get lung injury. Um, you can get um, oxygen uh, damage to uh, to to lungs because it's uh, a high dose oxygen can lead to um, lung injury. You can get, uh, after a six week course of treatment, because treatment for a chronic stuff goes for six weeks so five days a week for six weeks good commitment Um, you can get uh, diffusion of oxygen um, uh, into the cornea and it can actually change uh, people's short um, uh, sites so they need to just change their glasses temporarily yeah it goes back to normal but they change it temporarily so you've got it. there's a few ones with diabetics it can uh um, attenuate uh, can um, uh, potentiate uh, the effect of insulin so you can get a uh, hypose all right. the diabetics going we try and run them uh, uh, uh you know above eight millimoles of uh, uh, sugar in this in this system okay so we, uh, and if they're a bit low we just give them uh, bickies and juice yeah <laughs> and you know other than that you're you know you're if you've got critically unwell patients you're uh, stuck in a chamber at depth um you know, you might have machines that go bleep, but you're still stuck in a chamber. So if there's a cardiac arrest, for example, um, you know, the the attendant is in until such time as somebody else can get into the uh, chamber next to them. So- Has has that happened
0: before? Has it happened? Yeah, that's
1: happened before. And so if you had a sudden, uh, or you can get, one of the other side effects, of course, is seizures due to increased oxygen. Now, if you have a, usually the seizures in the chamber are self-limiting, and uh, by simply removing the oxygen, they get better. But uh, yep. you, what you'd probably do is if you, had some, if you had cardiac arrest, the attendant would start compressions, the chamber that they're in would be coming up and there would be somebody going down. They'd meet somewhere in the middle to get a buddy to come in and help. And, yep. and then they'd come up to surface. But that would be, you know, over five minutes. That's wow. just that bell ringing. So that we have a very nice old brass uh, nautical bell to ring when the... Um, uh, when the uh, most when the big compressions finished and wow. you, you know if you can hear those nice sort of clunky yeah. up. and um yeah so they uh we, we've got a very sort of naval time to the department there our um, past um head of department was a uh, uh one of the anaesthetists as a um navy uh, captain as well in the reserves and we had our two technicians uh, our ex-navy divers so they're very experienced and. Um, uh, you know, diving uh, type issues and we'll often talk to them about, you know, whether a dive's risky or not and uh, just using their many years of experience as navy
0: divers. Wow, that's interesting. Um, And I was just going to say that was quite interesting when you said about a cardiac arrest. I mean, we're so used to having in hospitals, you know, all of our, you know, staff around us. I guess with COVID recently, it was quite interesting when we were, you know, trying to get our PPA on, but that takes only about, you know, a minute at max you know or even 30 seconds let alone you guys having to decompress to get to someone that must be really interesting
1: yeah i think it's uh, i mean it's something that we're always aware of when people are going in the chamber you know they're often on quad strength noradrenaline need fascism and and, you know these patients are always at risk and then you're throwing the physiological changes that occur with uh, a compression you know the known and unknown effects um, and there's always unknown things that we that go on so there, there's a certain it's not something that you would uh you do rightly putting critically ill patients in there but um you know like everything it doesn't happen often it's just a case of having preparation to uh to deal with it and, and there's always a, uh, always a um uh critical care consultant so the consultants that work here are either emergency icu or uh, anesthetic um okay. uh, anesthetic consultants
0: yeah so what are some of the misconceptions john just um that people have around hyperbaric stuff um well, i mean
1: there's a lot of people pay a lot of money to go and get compressed to um 1.4 meters of sea level so they could basically lie in their bath and hold their nose and get the same effect yeah um, the uh if you're in a hyperbaric chamber and somebody's pumping it with their foot then you probably shouldn't be paying for it yeah um, <laughs> the uh so there's a there's, there's a lot of um you know sham stuff uh out there and and uh you know as we know where you just gotta think it's kind of like the vitamin industry there's if um yeah if you create something and advertise it then people are gonna uh accept uh that it works and they'll pay money for it um so mm-hmm. that's one of the misconceptions is that you can treat a lot of things with it. Yeah and somehow more oxygen is better. Um the uh the there's a I, I suppose there's. Uh, not a lot understood about the uh, the chronic uh, indications that we have where, you know, the, it works pretty well. We have the, you know, the neck fash, the cage and the, and the diving stuff, but the, you know, our, uh, our meat and potatoes stuff probably does a lot more good to a greater number of people yeah. uh, in terms of improving lives. And uh, well, it's, it's a very satisfying part of the job mm. you know, to see it. Uh, it's strange for an emergency physician to say that they, you know, they're the best part of their, week was watching the it
0: won't heal but um, you never know there you go. Yeah like he's that's interesting too you know um John I guess um for people what if someone wanted to do um maybe there's a junior doctor out there that has thought about doing some sort of altitude medicine or wants to d- get involved in hyperbaric what types of things would you recommend? You, you you were talking about being on base camp but what are some things um you think are really important um for anyone wanting yeah, to look,
1: I I think the important thing is to say yes to everything. Yeah. Um, and uh, not particularly with altitude, but when I went to base camp, I was actually a GP uh, at the time. Well, but I'd had, because I'd, um, I'd taken a few years off medicine and was a, a, a ski patroller. And because I'd done that and was involved in mountains, um, I got, you know, you used to get a lot of calls to do um, expedition medicine. One of them was to, um, uh, was to um, go to Everest. But you often get jobs by default I, I got the job on the ski patrol i got asked to uh do the, they didn't used to have full-time doctors on the patrol so yeah i used to do a lot of um uh adventure racing running over mountains and riding and canoeing and all that sort of stuff in new zealand and somebody assumed that i could ski based on that so they me <laughs> the job uh, as a ski patroller and a doctor on the patrol and then they realized very quickly i couldn't ski but <laughs> when you're there every day you quickly learn. So I think if you first of all you want to have a uh, get involved in lots of those things and, and uh don't be too set on you know getting on a path in medicine. If you want to be a you know fabulously wealthy uh orthopedic surgeon or someone like that then you probably need to start doing your unaccredited positions and saying yes sir but if um if you want to try and have, sort of have an interesting life anything critical care uh, get involved in it. don't be afraid to take breaks you know the exams are never going to go away they'll always be there for you to do later and um, uh, and then get an interest and in see what you might want to do uh, and then come back do critical care um, and find out about uh, working in the area there's not all we have a um, advanced trainee uh, anesthetic or emergency advanced trainee uh, working uh, doing a full-time job for six months here yep uh, so there's a rotation. Uh, around the country, there's, I um, don't want to get it wrong, you know, four or five units the same size as us. Yeah. Um, we'll have, we'll have uh, registrars. So there's a, you know, a, a group, uh, and then there's career, careers in it. Obviously, not a large number. And it's not like you know, there's hundreds and hundreds of chambers around. But uh, you know, I think in anything, uh, slightly different is to just get out there and experience it a bit, and then uh, try and catch up with your chosen uh, career path.
0: Mm um i've actually didn't realize but i think i've watched a few of your videos um procedure videos online i don't know if that's right um yeah we've been, we've been uh i've
1: been working on that for a, a number of years but myself and james myers have uh, got a procedures video uh which, is, which has we've spent uh large part of the last you know maybe three four five years uh developing and um, it's. uh We've got uh, I think there's 100 procedures on there and 50 of them have got videos and and we'll cover all of them at some stage. But one of the things we're doing there is is that uh, we're researching it, to not to death, but we're doing a relatively deep dive into every procedure in terms of there's an awful lot of mythology uh, about procedures and and, a lot of uh, eminence and this is the way we did it. Um, and I've always done it, but, uh, you know, there's lots of little nice things that when you uh, do a dive into the evidence around procedures and then talk to all of the experts and then ask people what they actually do. So it's interesting that what we teach and what we do, and you know, when no one's watching, it's often two different things. And Mm. and sometimes, you know, there's... uh, So when the procedures is um, about doing it, uh, if you don't know how to do it, or if you know how to do it and, and you've forgotten, then this is a reminder and it's a safe way and it gives you the nuts and bolts. And then of course, as always the caveat
0: that you must speak with your supervisor and leave them under supervision. Mm. I, I was it's awesome. I was talking to someone yesterday, I love innovative, like really innovative ways to do things. And I was thinking, um, even if you had like, you know, your art line set up pack and then you had a little QR code and you could QR it and then your video would pop up on how to put in the art line, you know, I was like, oh, I just thought about that yesterday. I was like, "That'd be awesome." Um, I'm even thinking about yeah, for, yes. for my stuff, just setting up. Yeah, no, look, it's, yeah, it's um, uh,
1: we're we're currently uh developing a um, a new app, uh, which will have a lot more um, bells and whistles. But they we we started with a QR code to get access to, just to the app. It takes you to the app, so yep. you don't have to think about it. But yeah, you're right. Uh, you could do things like uh, uh separate uh, one so that uh, they're, they're most of the procedures videos are, um, uh, we keep to around two and a half, three minutes. Awesome. Um, there's a couple of longer ones. We, we tried to compress, uh, foreign body removal from the cornea down and we decided that it was just too much great stuff to put in there. So it's a bit longer. It's about five or six. Yeah. But, um, yeah, you're, you're right. There's a one of the biggest problems with, uh, what, and I've been trying to overcome it for many years and haven't aren't fully successful, this is it having stuff readily available for people all the time and a lot of it's uh communications and comms that you know obviously you're uh, much better at it being uh younger and in the you <laughs> know podcast zoom technology uh um, sort of environment the problem is is that we have a lot of old dumb men uh, <laughs> and, and um, so uh and I will watch on one so we, <laughs> What, what we need to do is uh, we certainly we and James is a lot younger and we've even got a, a, a younger people still uh, interested in the uh, marketing and trying mm-hmm. to get it out there. So so, it's, so we've, we've developed uh, got a very bright young bloke who's uh, yeah uh, produced, uh, set us up as a not for profit company and and yep. um, also looked a lot about how to get it out there and get it used more. Um, so but we've got um, now we've got the. Uh, we used um, often overseas more than we are in our own country at the moment in terms of the uh, we've been used by the World health organization and their emergency training packages and and the Inter- uh, international federation of emergency medicine is um wow. using a lot, a lot of the apps. so it's kind of um uh it's, it's kind of it's been used more in hungary than it is in
0: wollongong at the moment how do we um find the app mate well, if i'm looking it up on my phone and people want to um look at it what do they go to yeah, so,
1: so the probably at, at the moment this is that it's still a uh, web-based app so yeah. um it's still hung on the uh, ACI Eci emergency care institute site yep so if you but if you google eCI emergency procedures you' probably get it awesome um uh, the, the app that we're building at the moment is going to be uh, an app store app um awesome. so it'll it will be Android, um, uh, Apple, uh, and that'll that'll change things. But the more advantage is having a web-based app and that people can put them on a the desktop, et cetera. But I think the, the reality is that, you know, uh, anything from your generation back does everything on a phone there anyway, so. Um. For
0: everyone out there, I'll put in links in the show notes for people to, um, with um, procedure videos and procedure stuff and a link to the ECI stuff.
1: Be
0: um, yeah I'll, I'll do that for everyone to look at in closing like um for any information on hyperbaric um medicine or even um resources um if you've what are some things that you recommend i'm happy to put them in the show notes for people as well to have a look at um yeah probably yeah. um uh
1: I, I could find a few links and just send them to you probably things like the sponge you know the undersea water society yep. um there's actually a, an hbo site which is um Sweet. Uh, hyperbaric oxygen research site which our professor of anesthetics mike bennett kind of runs and all of the evidence is summarized and and um you know uh, rated for value kind of like a um, you know cochrane style yeah uh, one so um but what i could do is i'll, I'll just treat that down and send you the
0: links yeah that'd be awesome sweet um that's i reckon we're we're pretty good, eh? You reckon?
1: Cool. Yeah, yeah. I better go and I actually got the last lot just come out, so I better
0: go and say a lot. Yep. And that's a wrap on the EDGM podcast. I want to say thank you to everybody who listens. Thank you to everyone who follows my um, Instagram as well, EDGM underscore podcast. Thanks to Dr. John McKenzie for coming on the podcast. What an absolute wizard. So much information. Um, I'm going to re-listen to that again because I feel like I learned so much just listening to that. Um, I love when people come on and then take up their time to come and talk to us. Um, I've got heaps of new episodes coming out. Um, We're going to be talking about juvenile diabetes and hear another case study story. Um, Also, going to hear from a midwife. We're going to hear about chest trauma and a few other things. Stay tuned. Um, Make sure you like, subscribe to the podcast, um, share it with your friends, um, and have an awesome week. You!